Welcome to the latest word from the church at Severn Run. Our church is located in Severn, Maryland, and is easily accessible from anywhere in the D.C. Baltimore area. You can subscribe for regular updates or check in weekly for the latest information by using our website, severinrun.com. Thank you for visiting. And now, today's message. The rich were getting richer, and the poor were getting poorer. Uh, the wealthy entrepreneurs were, well, they were finding a way to raise the property value to increase the rent and those sorts of things so that the working class and those who, who maybe lived at the poverty line or below could no longer afford to live in the area. They could then take over that property and they could improve it and they could sell it to people who had means. It's a form of what we call these days gentrification. But it was called something else back in the day, back in the 8th century B.C., when a fellow by the name of Micah was on the scene. You see, Micah, he was a, uh, he was a spokesperson for God. He lived about 30 miles from Jerusalem in a little place called Morasheth. And the reason that's important is because, you see, at that time there had been a civil war and there was the, the country to the north, which was just known as Israel, and the country to the south, which was known as Judah. The capital of the country to the north was Samaria and the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. So you see, Micah, he lived close enough to Jerusalem, close enough to the capital, to understand uh, the corruption that was going on in the city, to understand the problems that were taking place. And God had informed him about what was happening in Samaria as well, so that the message God gave him would be for both countries, because they were collectively uh, the people of God. Now, you guys know what the deal with a prophet is, right? But just in case, a prophet is somebody who speaks for God, yeah? Now, most of the time, they confront the sin or corruption of the nation, or they confront the sin or corruption of the individual leader or leaders of a nation, yeah? Sometimes, God gives the prophet a, uh, a message of hope or encouragement especially when they're going through a difficult time, to tell them to just hold on, that God has not forgotten them. And from time to time, on fairly rare occasion, then God gives the prophet a message to reveal something or to uncover something that's not known. So you, you with me on this? All right, so that's what a prophet is, and, and Micah was a prophet. So in this case, God had given Micah uh, a message, but it was because... Uh, he needed to confront the sinful behavior of the people of God. See, as I mentioned before, what was happening was that the rich were getting richer. They were finding ways to take over land, to possess it, to make profit on those who, who were, we would think in terms of working class or poor. Now, the reason that was a problem was because their perspective on land back in the day is a little bit different than ours. In our day, and, and I realize this is an oversimplification, simplification. Listen, I've had a cardiac event, okay? Cut me some slack here. All right, an oversimplification of the situation, but you just stay with me, okay? I mean, so basically, we have two primarily ways of looking at property, there's kind of that which falls under capitalism, and that's where the individual uh, or the individual entity 
owns the land. We hold the deed and that's our property, right? And then another way to look at it is, is called communism. Um, sometimes we refer to it as eminent domain. That's when the city or the state owns the Thank you for getting that, somebody. <laughs> That's when the city or the state owns the land. But you see, back in the day for people, uh, the people of God, the perspective was that God owned the land. Even if you held the deed, God owned the land. And he was a gracious and he was a generous landlord. He let you have that land so that your family might prosper. He let you have that land so that you could enjoy it and you could enjoy freedom. He let you have that land so you could improve it, so that you could live well, so that you could have a future for your family. But what God never intended was for the wealthy, the business savvy, the, the entrepreneurs to find ways to take that land from you and make a profit off of you. That was never part of God's plan. And so that's what Micah comes to confront. Now, here's the thing. Um, you know, actually, let me just say this, because I'll say this two or three times. Um, don't take my word for this, okay? Like, when you have a chance to, today sometime, just read the first couple of chapters of Micah and see if it doesn't ring true or not for you, okay? I mean, because I'm from Indiana. What do I know? Um, but not only, were, not only were these people making a profit off of land that didn't initially belong to them, but they were acting like it was no big deal. And in fact, they had their own prophets who were telling them, look, you're not doing anything illegal. It's okay. It's okay for you to become oppressors of your own people. It's okay. In fact, as long as you go to worship, and as long as you get 10% of what you make, uh, and as long as you give a little extra during the feast and stuff, God should be pleased with you. And so when Micah comes along, and he says, actually, I got bad news for you. God is not pleased with you. And here's the thing, is that not only does he say that, he's not just saying that to the people who own the land, to the people who have taken advantage of other people. He says it to everyone. He says it even to those who weren't involved in oppressing others or marginalizing others. And at first that may seem a bit unfair, but you see, if you read a guy by the name of Amos, because he wrote a book as well, if you read this guy named Amos, he will tell you that there is such a thing as the sin of silence. That not only do you sin against God by what you do, but you also sin against God by what you don't do. See, I, I learned that about 30 years ago. When I became a follower of Christ. I, I was a drunken sailor, and when I began to follow Christ, an Air Force buddy of mine, Tony Bell, he kind of took me under his wing, and he, uh, and he tried to teach me what it meant to be a follower of Christ, because I, like, knew nothing. I, in fact, I knew nothing. About, I didn't even know what I didn't know, you know, about following Jesus. And so he explained this thing to me. He said, there's basically two ways to dishonor God. He said, one of the ways you dishonor God is by doing something that harms someone else or just flat out you disobey God. And he said, and then the other way is for you to know that you're supposed to do something and choose not to. 
Now, they had this really fancy way of, because you know how when you first become a Christian, you got to like learn the new language. They had, uh, they had this way of saying it. They called it the sin of commission and the sin of omission. The sin of commission is when you do something wrong. And the sin of omission is when you choose not to do something you're supposed to and thereby are doing wrong. Are you guys with me? Let me give you an example. So like, for instance, Adam and Eve. You remember like in the very front of the book, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden and they're free and it's awesome. They're living this perfect life. And God's given them like one rule, right? He says, look, center of the garden, there's a tree, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat from that, okay? You eat anything else you want, but just don't eat from that. And then you read in like Genesis chapter 3, Right, that uh, Eve is having a conversation with a snake. Now, why a woman would have a conversation with a snake, I have no idea. But Eve is having a conversation with a snake, and she loses the debate. And she takes and she eats from the, the, the fruit from the tree of good and evil, right? Knowledge of good and evil. That's a sin of commission, right? But in Genesis chapter 3, it says she then gave some fruit to her husband who was with her. So you see, there were actually two sins that happened at the exact same time. She ate of the fruit, and Adam stood there and did nothing. Sin of commission, sin of omission, same time. Right? Now, if you still think, uh, dude, that's, it's still this whole sin of silence, sin of omission thing, it seems a little weak to me. Then, here, let me just read a passage to you. It's from Ezekiel chapter 33, Okay? And again, Ezekiel is, uh, is another prophet. In Ezekiel chapter, listen, if you want to look it up with me, because like I was totally, totally lame and didn't get my text and slides to the guys back there in time. <laughs> but, but I mentioned to you that I had a cardiac event four weeks ago, right? <laughs> I have so milked that thing with my church plant. I can, they're just tired of hearing about my... <laughs> about my stints, okay? So anyway, all right, Ezekiel chapter 33, if you want to look, easiest way to do this, go to the very front of the book, table of contents, you'll find it like in the top section, look for Ezekiel, go to that page number, and then flip till you see 33, okay? You with me? You guys are just ignoring me, aren't you? Okay. All right, Ezekiel 33, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, When I bring the sword against the land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and he blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. And since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. Verse 6, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning for me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. 
But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. So I'll just ask, does it sound like God is cool with people remaining silent when others are in danger of judgment? I mean, does it sound to you like God is casual about us being aware of people headed down the wrong path, a path of destruction, a path of oppressing others, and us turning a blind eye? Now, lest you think, yeah, yeah, hang on a second, Ron, but uh, that's specifically for the watchman guy, and I'm not the watchman. Yeah, I got some bad news. You see, we're Baptist, sort of. There's nobody from the North American Mission Board here, is there? <laughs> okay, so no, 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 we're Baptist. Really, we're Baptist, honest. And one of the things is Baptist, you know what we believe? It, it's a doctrine. It's called the priesthood of all believers. Do you know what that means? We're all watchmen. That's basically what that means. And so that passage, it applies to all of us who are followers of Jesus. Listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it doesn't apply to you, but we should really at some time talk about other things, okay, that do apply to you. So, back to Micah. The people of Israel and Judah were like, look, we do not get this, all right? We come to worship. When we're supposed to come to worship, we give 10%. We give extra for special festivals and sacrifices. What exactly is it that God wants from us? Is he never going to be pleased? I mean, do we have to just, like, sacrifice our own children? And just so you know, I'm not making this up. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Check it out. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I mean, they're saying, what does God want from us? And so Micah answers the question. Verse 8. He's shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Now, in another translation, it is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I want you to hold on to that phrase, to do justice, because we'll come back to it in a second, okay? Now, the first thing I want you to know about Micah 6, 8 is that God is talking to all of the people of God. He's not talking to just an individual. He's talking to all of the people of God. So he's talking to us as a community of faith, all right? And then the second thing I want you to know is at the very beginning of the verse where Micah says, what does the Lord require of you? I, I was checking that out. And in Hebrew, you can actually translate that as well. What is God seeking? Now, because my Hebrew is rusty, I called my little brother, uh, Tom, who's he's like a genius. He's a Hebrew and Old Testament professor out in the Midwest. And I asked him and he agreed with me. He said, your Hebrew is rusty. Um, <laughs> But no, he said, you know what, you can. You can translate it as, uh, you can translate it as require or you can translate it as seek. So basically the meaning behind the language is something like this. 
What is it that God looks for in his people? What is one of the first things that God looks for in us? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. The year was 1946. Branch Rickey, he was the manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Branch was a forward-thinking man, and so he did something that I guess it had not occurred to anyone else to do. In 1946, he signed a contract with Jack Robinson, Jack Roosevelt Robinson, and for the first year, he played uh, with Montreal and had such an amazing year that in 1947, he was moved up to play in the major league with the Dodgers. And so on April the 15th of 1947, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. Branch Rickey warned him in advance how difficult it would be. In fact, Ricky said, you're going to be hated, you're going to be amused, you're going to be abused, you're going to be maligned, you're going to be denigrated, your family's going to be insulted. There's no telling what all you're going to have to endure, and you have to make me this promise. Don't fight back with violence. Use your bat and use your play to fight back. Jackie Robinson agreed to it, and you won't believe what he endured in those years as a major league player. His first year in 1947, he led the league in hits by pitcher, meaning there were more pitchers who threw at and hit him with baseballs than anyone else in the league. When he would travel with the team, he couldn't stay in the same hotel as the, his teammates. When they would stop the bus so that the team could eat a meal, he had to eat around back because black people couldn't eat with white people. When he took the field, he was jeered. He was mocked. They threw racial epithet after racial epithet. That they threw rocks at him. They threw debris at him. The other teams mocked him and yelled, vicious things at him. He received in his first year over 2,000 death threats. His wife, Rachel, was threatened. His son was threatened. It is hard to be even begin to conceive what the man went through just to be able to play baseball. Well, toward the end of the season in 1947, the Dodgers, they went to play the Cincinnati Reds. The, the captain of the team is a fellow by the name of Pee Wee Reese. At the time in 1947, Pee Wee Reese was one of the most popular baseball players in all of the league. He played shortstop and he was captain for the team. And there in Cincinnati, when Jackie took the field, the epithets came again the words that were screamed at him, the insults, the debris. And at one point during the warm-up, Pee Wee runs over to where Jackie is, turns him to face the hate-filled crowd, 
and put his arm around him. That act has actually become legend. There's a statue of the two in Coney Island. I don't want you to misunderstand. By doing that, Pee Wee didn't end racism. He didn't convince the crowd not to hate Jackie. He didn't convince all of the people even on his team to not hate Jackie. That's not what happened when he did that. What he did was he stood with Jackie and he let him know in front of everyone else that he was not alone. And that is the beginning of doing justice. My city, my community, as you saw from the video, our homicide rate is 722% above the national average. Where I live, 22.6% of our homes are vacant. Where I live, my community, almost 50% of our adults are functionally illiterate. They read at or below a sixth grade level. In my community where I live, the average age when a child finishes school is 14.5. Did you know that in my community where I live, if you are a child born into poverty, by the time you reach the third grade, you will be 25,000 to 50,000 words behind a third grade student in the county or in the suburbs? Did you know that? See, a third-grade student in the county of the suburbs will have about 100,000 words in their vocabulary by the third grade. Our kids who are born into poverty, by the time they reach the third grade, they'll have somewhere between 50,000 and 75,000 words. So as time progresses, who do you think is going to do better on the standardized testing? I'm just curious. Did you know that a child born in poverty in my community, by the time they reach the third, year, third grade on average, they will be two full academic years behind a child who lives in, his, in the third grade in the county or in the suburbs? The school where my team and I, our little church where we worship, if you go three blocks from there, you'll come to a little community called Irvington. 36.4% child poverty, that's the rate there in Irvington. 36.4%, I'm not talking about a third world country, I'm talking about my community. 36.4%, just so you know what I'm talking about, that's one in three children who live in the most back-breaking, mind-numbing, gut-wrenching, soul-draining circumstances that you or I could imagine, one in three and their children. If you go one block behind where we worship, where we gather for worship, is a place called Beachfield. It's a little bit better. It's 24.5% child poverty. That's just one in four. Every day during the school year, almost 500 students come into our school, North Bend Elementary and Middle School. 90... 91% of them qualify for free and reduced meals. 95% of them are what we call Title I. Title I means that they're either at risk of failure or they live at or below the poverty line. 95%. Only 12.5% of our kids this year met Maryland state requirements for math. 12.5%. Our kids. 
they're not those people, they're my people. They aren't those kids, they're my kids. And I love them. You know, one of my favorite quotes My all-time favorite quotes. It is those who no one expects anything of who do the things that no one expected. Our 500 students, I can promise you, nobody expects anything of them. No one imagines anything of them. And we imagine something different for them. See, what we're trying to figure out is what it means to become part of the community, what it means to stand in public with them and put our arm around them and say, you are not alone. We are in this together. We are trying to look and figure out what it means to stand against injustice, to stand with the oppressed, to stand with the marginalized and say to them, your plight is my plight. For us to be able to do that, we have to have skin in the game. You see, for us to be able to do that, we have to listen and we have to try to understand and we have to try to apologize for the times that people like me oppressed them and took advantage of them. We have to become one. That's how we are doing justice in my little community of faith. Now, you guys, you've done some amazing things here. You really have... I mean, you know, I don't spend near as much time raising funds as just about every other church planter in the city because of your generosity. No, it's true. Because of your generosity collectively and because of some of you individually, I probably only spend half a day a week raising funds. That's significant. That means I've got more time to do the work that God's called us to. Because of you, some of you have come out and you've helped us and you've helped others. You've gotten engaged with projects. And I'm not here to make you feel guilty. I totally get living in the suburbs, okay? I totally get living in the county. I get wanting your family to be safe and wanting your kids to go to good schools. I respect that. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to guilt you for how you live your life as far as protecting your kids and your family is concerned. I just have a question for you, though. Did God give you and me the resources he gave us so that we could live the American dream? Or did he give you and me the resources he gave us so that we could do something greater? So that we could do something eternal? Martin Luther King Jr. said, in the end, we will not remember the insults of our enemies, but rather the silence of our friends. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us today at the Church at Severn Run. Please visit our website at severnrun.com for church service information, staff directories, or for prayer requests. And if you're in the D.C. Baltimore area, we'd love to have you join us at 8187 
Telegraph Road in Severn, Maryland. We look forward to worshiping with you.